Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, a professor, and a chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and today we are doing part two of Getting Eldership Right. Because it's so critical to get eldership right, we've been doing this two-part series. You can go back a few weeks and listen to our previous part one of the episode to help churches to think through the nature of biblical eldership and how to develop quality biblical elders. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about what elders are defined by scripture. And in today's episode, we're going to share practical wisdom for the development of local church elders. So Aaron, I know you want to talk about this and help our listeners out. So let's start off with some general principles for identifying and developing new elders. Well, the number one thing I would say to pastors and church boards and councils is to take seriously this responsibility. I think too often we rely upon our seminaries to somehow create elders for us, or when we're short on elders, we put out a job posting and we we hire guys from other churches. But we need churches to develop from scratch their own elders. And that's a lengthy process, especially if you're leading people to Christ and leading them through a discipleship process. So to just take it seriously, like take this and make it a priority for your church to develop good quality men, the majority of which should be developed from within your congregation. Well, obviously, when we develop these kind of men, we want to keep the process uh, prayerful and organic. In other words, you can't overly administrate the process of developing elders, but you want to keep it prayerful, organic, not a political contest, not a power contest, but also you want you want to plan it. You want to have in your mind a process for planning and working toward the development of good quality biblical elders. So here's some things that I have um, tried to uh, put into practice over the years. And the one is that I'm just constantly on the lookout. I'm just always assessing and interacting with people. And I don't want people to be freaked out when they're in my presence thinking he's, you know, he's assessing me, he's trying to read my mind. But in part, I, I am doing that. I'm, I'm trying to understand how people think. I'm trying to understand how people respond to the events of the world. I'm trying to get a, a handle on how they interact with other people and their marriage and their children. So always on the lookout. I also think it's important for us to think long-term. So I, I'm i already thinking about guys that can be developed into elders 5, 10, 15 years from now. I'm, I'm looking at guys in our youth group and thinking, okay, that, that young man, I'm going to keep my eye on him because he seems to have something going on there, some gifts, some skills that maybe when he's 30 years old or whatnot, he might make a good elder. And then I'm looking at the 25-year-olds and they're starting to get into that phase of life where they're becoming mature men and they're getting married and they're raising kids and starting their careers. And I'm I'm watching them and watching how they interact with their peers. By the time they're in their 30s, uh, if I've known them for a while, I got a bit of an idea about the guys that, that I think may be, may be gifted in this area. So thinking long-term years in advance is really important. Obviously, that requires that you stay in the same church for a long time. You're not a, a, a pulpit hopper uh, looking for uh, a, a new gig every few years. Long-term ministry is, is a huge blessing to a church if it's competent. I, uh, I think one of the greatest things a pastor can do is uh, create venues, forums, um, ministries in the church where he's regularly 
exposed to and interacting with other guys in the church. So over the years, I've had my discipleship groups, and that gives me exposure to the you know 16 to 25-ish crowd of guys in the church. And it helps me to, you know, having spent eight, 10 months with them in a given year, every couple of weeks, it helps me to get a handle on whether they're good theological thinkers, whether they have some wisdom about them, whether they're hard workers, the kind of things that that you're going to want to find in an elder. So if if pastors only spend time with their friend group or their age group or their peers, well, you're not going to really know what's going on in some of the other demographics in the life of the church, and you're not going to be able to see potential men in other age groups or demographics to to develop into into eldership. Uh, one of the other things I've done is sometimes I'll just take the church directory and I, I print it off or, okay, to be honest with you, I'll ask someone else in the church to say. print it off because <laughs> I don't even know how to access it. And I'll just go through it. I, I, I did this this year. I just print it off. I asked for a list, print off all the men in the church and a list. And I just kind of went through it. And name by name, I just thought about each guy. And the reason why I do that is because a guy who's, if I'm just relying upon my memory, Lord, just lay it upon my heart to, you know, give me a name for a guy that might make a good elder. Well, I'm going to overlook a lot of people. So Mm -hmm. by looking at the names and conscientiously thinking, I wonder if this person has the skill sets, the, the availability, they've been in the church long enough. That's a, that's a, that's something that I would recommend guys do on occasion. Keep your antennas up, what you don't want. So if you're an elder-led church, an elder-ruled church, you, you have a high regard for, for eldership, you can't afford to get eldership wrong. Okay? You cannot afford to get eldership wrong. So that means you have to be aware and wary. If a guy is too good to be true, if he you, he only presents his positive, there's no self-disclosure, there's no vulnerability, he seems maybe a little too too eager to be in leadership. Uh, he comes off as a theological know-it-all, or he doesn't ask people questions about them. He's interested more in sharing about himself. He has an agenda. It, it takes discernment, but you, you want to just be careful. There's some people that want eldership that aren't mature enough for it or aren't qualified for it, and you want a person to aspire to it, but not be so eager that they're tripping over themselves to to find positions in the church. I'm I'm certainly open to uh, bringing men into eldership that have been elders in other churches and for whatever reason ended up at yours, but you shouldn't assume mm-hmm. that because they were elders elsewhere that they necessarily are even biblically qualified elders, unless you're really familiar with the process the previous church went through. And sometimes it's it's just hard for people to to adjust. So if you have a particular way of doing things in your church, and and we do, and we don't we don't apologize for that. There's a certain culture we've um, we've experienced here. There's a certain uh, there's certain expectations that we have uh, of elders. Um, you want to make sure if you're bringing someone into eldership from another church, they really understand uh, that what they did in the previous church isn't necessarily what your expectations are in your church. So that's just um, a, a wisdom point. And then um, 
I, I also think it's important for pastors to speak well of eldership as a biblical um, paradigm. So through your preaching, you want to esteem all roles in the church. You don't want to just highlight your elders. That can be self-serving mm -hmm. or give people the impression that that's the only thing that you care about. But at the same time, you want to speak highly of elders and, and honor, honor, give honor to, to whom honor is due and create a, a culture in your church where people esteem eldership and young men, younger men, as they grow, would aspire, if not to eldership, to at least manifest the character of an elder. So those would be some things that I think are are, are pretty important, just sort of general principles, being strategic about it, f processing potential elders in advance, looking through, praying through a directory, um, having a high view of eldership, guarding eldership, making sure that people aren't entering it for the wrong reasons. Those sorts of things are, are, are really, um, really quite, quite helpful. Mm -hmm. So just as you say that the obvious thing is that it's not a, uh, it's not a two hour process. It's not like you just one day decide these guys are gonna be elders and the next day they're elders. Um, it's more of a, it's more of a process. So can you talk about that process and how you would recommend a church follow through from maybe past the identifying phase on? Yeah. You know, when I started ministry back in the early 90s, the, the typical way that churches would find uh, vocational elders is you'd, you'd get a stack of resumes from your denominational head office and you'd thumb through them and you'd invite a guy down and you'd have a two-hour interview and he'd preach on a Sunday and um, maybe another interview after some sort of a congregational meeting uh, that might happen again on a second weekend. But at the end of the day, you're, you're, you're entrusting a person with being an elder in your local church, having maybe had not more than eight, 10, 12 hours of exposure to that person. Well, that's why a lot of the times it doesn't work out. The church and the elder have different expectations or the elder doesn't, you know, he, he, he puts his best foot forward in the interview, but over time you see flaws. I just think that's very dangerous. I'm just, I'm not going to say never, but I, I almost, I almost would be prepared to say as a general rule or principle, I just don't bring elders on from outside of the church. I want to develop them from within mm -hmm. as much as possible. And it also puts responsibility on me to actually develop elders to equip people for the work of the ministry, again, instead of assuming that someone else is going to do it. That doesn't mean if someone got, gone off to seminary for a few years or they've come into your church and served in some other capacity for a few years, but eldership is critical. And to put someone in the highest office in a local church that you've only known for a couple handfuls of hours or heard preach a sermon or two, man, you're, you're taking a pretty big risk there. So what we want to do is we want to extend that process out. We're optimistic. We just have this notion, hey, if God wants our ministry to, to be at this point in time in this place, then he's going to provide the leadership to make it happen. By the way, that's true of all ministries. We just, we just don't start ministries in our church unless we have the leaders to lead them, because if we don't have the leaders to lead them, clearly God's not in it, or we've fumbled the ball in some way. So we want... We want God to provide men to lead in the church as elders. 
we want to be proactive in fanning that flame and developing those kind of men. But at the same time, um, you know, going through going through a bit of a, a, a an elongated process to make sure that we get it right. Mm-hmm. So part of that would be an, an observation phase. So we want to spend time watching guys, right? And looking at how they respond to the events of life. Hey, one of the things I would say that's pretty pretty important in our current culture and context is um, I would just I would want to make sure they'd be prepared to go to jail for Christ. Mm-hmm. If a guy's not prepared to go to jail for Christ, he's not going to be leading in our church because that's not far fetched anymore. So we we want men that are willing to sacrifice it all for Christ. We're not looking to go to jail. We don't want to go to jail, but we need men that are prepared to make tough choices because there's increasing threats being levied against Christians. Mm-hmm. So I'd want a guy that's prepared to lose his house, lose his life, lose his job. If he's not prepared to do that, just warm the back pew kind of thing. That's important. I would want to know that he has a good solid family life. So what is his wife like? What's their marriage like? What are the children like? Talk to them here and there, kind of see, try to get a sense of uh, of how the family dynamics are. Um, pay attention to whether other people follow, respect, esteem him, speak well of him. Uh, make sure that he he obviously would want to serve in this role, but not you know want it so bad that his entire identity is wrapped up in being a leader in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to look for uh, depth of experience. I I don't have like a an age minimum that I would I would put on an elder, but the reality is is that you know we don't we don't develop into maturity in just a few years typically. So you want a guy with some experience, some some uh, time in the trenches, some time in various kinds of ministry. And then look at his social chemistry. One of the qualifications of eldership is to be hospitable. Well, that means to interact with the stranger. We want guys that can interact with people, especially the stranger, especially you know unbelievers that's thought of well by those around them. So we would look for things like uh, social... IQ, you know, a guy that's socially awkward. Um, we wouldn't want a guy that's so timid that he can't have a conversation with people or just seems uncomfortable in his own skin. You want someone who's self-aware that knows their strengths and weaknesses and is appropriately humble. And then is he a is he a people person? Does he talk to people? Because ultimately, if you're an elder, you're going to be shepherding, you're going to be teaching, you're going to be pastoring people. And if you're just a bookworm or a theologue that loves sitting around in libraries, reading systematic theology and parsing Greek verbs, well, maybe you should be in a seminary, but I, I doubt you're going to do very well in pastoral ministry. Mm-hmm. So there'd be an observation phase mm-hmm. that would kind of include some of those dynamics. Yeah, what's interesting is that it, it uh, not to say, it, well, it does in some ways go beyond just a simple basic qualifications in Timothy and Titus, right? Um, not to, Those are like the essential qualifications, but then there's a wisdom, it sounds like, to the observation. Yeah, an, an, an observation, maybe a better way of putting it is a, an application of those qualifications. So qualifications are there so that you're qualified to do something with them. Mm-hmm. So why is it important to know the word of God? Because you're gonna have to teach it. Why is it important to teach the word of God so you can 
shape God's people and equip God's people. Mm -hmm. So that means you got to be able to put three words together and be a logical thinker and a decent communicator, right? So mm -hmm. those are applications of the qualifications. Being hospitable, while that's applicational in and of itself, why is it important for a guy to be sober-minded so he can deliberate over weighty issues, right? Mm -hmm. So these are, we're, it's not we're creating an, a new set of qualifications. We're taking the qualifications and thinking through practically how do they work themselves out? How do they flesh themselves out of a life of the local church? So always observing. And then at some point you need to have a discussion. So the discussion phase would be composed of maybe an, an, an offer to uh, sit down and, and talk about the nature of eldership and what we do in our churches. We like to do kind of an apprenticeship of sorts and say, hey, you know what, you want to, would you consider sitting in with our elders council for a year? And there's no, there's no guarantees for either party. It's not a done deal. It's just sit in for a year and observe how we operate. And if at the end of it, you return to serving within the local congregation in a capacity other than eldership, hey, that's great. That, that's a successful experience. You now know a little bit more about how elders function. But if mm -hmm. in that process, there's a mutual sense of um, of desire and affirmation, then we would typically um, give the man a couple of weeks to think about that. And and then we would uh, we would invite him to, to serve an apprenticeship. And like I said, the apprenticeship is generally a year. Um, they would sit in on meetings. We're not looking for them to give input, really, just sort of observe and answer questions as they're asked. And during that process, we, we want them to observe how decisions are made and to, in a sense, prove himself without trying to prove himself, if that, if that makes sense, to observe and to try to get a feel for how wise men deliberate over issues. They may, an apprentice may attend with another elder, let's say a church discipline hearing or um, hosting a ministry partner, a membership interview, these sorts of things. And then, and then we would enter into a, f a form of an ordination process, which, um, you know, when I was ordained as a vocational pastor, it was an extensive process. Like you write your paper out, you write your all your systematic theology statements, and your call to ministry, and your testimony, and your stances on vital issues, and a panel of people come and interview you, and then make a recommendation to the church. And then with with um, you know, lay elders, we typically just took a vote or something like that. It's like, mm. okay, if an elder's an elder, why do we why do we have this big highfalutin process for vocational elders and then this almost shoe-in process for lay elders? So what we've decided to do is everyone kind of goes through a form of an ordination process. So we would ask a guy that served an apprenticeship to um, we have an, what's called an elder application. You don't necessarily have to have one of those, but we have an elder application that asks him to write out his views on all major areas of Christian theology and his uh, views on some of our distinctives, our theological and ministerial distinctives and his testimony. And and then there's a, an interview with a couple of our existing elders and then there a recommendation to the eldership to um, affirm this man as an elder. And then just in case we've missed anything, we 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 publish their name to, to our congregation for, for three weeks. And 
if no one comes forward and says, hey, I, I got something to share with you, maybe you missed this, uh, we would have that conversation if someone brought something to our attention that was disqualifying. But otherwise, after that three-week period has expired, the elders would appoint that person to eldership. And that would generally lead to like a former, formal laying on of hands in the fall for any any new elders. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they're appointed to, to office and they start serving in eldership capacities. And, you know, they, they kind of go from there. Obviously, the, the way a, a brand new, fresh, freshly minted elder is going to function is different than maybe how a seasoned veteran is going to function. There's there's greater expectations. We don't, an elder's an elder's an elder, but obviously a guy that's 30 years old that's been serving as an elder for a week is going to function a little differently than a guy that's 55 and has been serving as an elder for 25 years, mm-hmm. right? So there's nothing there's nothing wrong with with uh, understanding that while the qualifications for all elders are the same, that there should be a, a natural deference to men that have more training, more wisdom, more experience, or let's say you're dealing with an administrative issue and a third of your elders are just really good administrators. You're probably gonna look to them for direction or a third of them are just really good shepherds or a third of them are just really good communicators. There's nothing, we don't, we're not looking for cookie cutter boards or cookie cutter vocational elders. Everyone has their own highs and a little bit lowers uh, and we're comfortable with recognizing that and and not not sort of fitting everyone into a box where they all sort of look and act the exact same. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So then once an elder is installed, we want to have expectations of that elder that are commensurate to the role that they're in. Yeah. So what kind of competencies competencies and expectations should a church have? So we would have vocational elders and lay elders and the process of moving into those to the office of elder is the same. But obviously if a guy is serving, let's just say 10 hours a week in a lay capacity and a guy is serving 50 hours a week in a vocational capacity, over time the guy that's serving 50 hours a week is gonna presumably pull ahead because he's just he's investing five times as much time and energy. He's probably getting more training, more experience. So we would have a ministry description uh, that is weightier for a vocational elder than we would for a, a lay elder. But if I just speak in terms of generalities, the basic expectations would be, well, to rule. Uh, an elder must rule the church. Uh, the Bible says in 1 Timothy 5, 17, let the elders who rule well be uh, considered worthy of double honor. So that's a reference to, to financial um, generosity. Uh, it's, it's, it's wrong and it's unbiblical to uh, diminish the the office of elder by being cheap with with salaries with pay. Now elders don't serve for the sake of a paycheck, and if if a guy does, he's disqualified himself. He's in mm-hmm. it for the wrong reason. Yep. But we live in a physical world. People need money to survive, and it's it's pretty gross when churches don't tend to do this anymore. But I would say forty years ago it was a big problem where the mindset was let's keep the pastor poor to keep him humble. You know, we applaud 
guys that have started contracting companies or have been successful engineers or physicians or whatever it might be, we applaud them for making good money, but people almost look with disdain on a minister of the gospel that's actually getting by. Uh, why? Uh, the Bible says that an elder that rules well be worthy of double honor, which technically means double pay. That doesn't literally mean we have to pay him twice as much as everyone else. But it certainly means we shouldn't be cheap. Like let the guy serve without having to worry about how he's going to pay his electricity bill. Um, so we want to we want to be generous. We want to also allow him to rule. I know in our culture, people don't like the idea of rule because it sounds autocratic. It sounds dictatorial. I'm just giving you the biblical word here. Okay, you take it up with God. Let the elders that rule well. It doesn't say facilitate votes in the church or facilitated democracy it, it's it's a word of rulership now they're always ruling under the ultimate king mm -hmm. so their accountability is ultimately to christ and you're going to be in a church if it's a biblical functioning church where there's a plurality of eldership meaning there's two so there's some mutual accountability minimally two but let them rule the problem by the way is is not with having strong elders I've never seen that as a problem in any church I've I've been part of. The problem is having unqualified elders. Mm -hmm. So don't 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 get all worked up because you have strong men in eldership. You want that. Uh, we're in a spiritual war, but what you don't want is unqualified ones, and what you don't want is rebellious flocks, which is far more of a problem in many churches than elders that are too strong. Let them teach and preach. The Bible says, especially those that labor in teaching and preaching. So what that tells us then, when it says, especially those, who is the those, the elders, who labor in preaching and teaching, this is really critical for people to understand. While all elders must be apt to teach, not all elders necessarily labor at teaching and preaching. I think it's wrong-headed to say, well, you're an elder, so you're going to get a Sunday morning every month to preach. Mm -hmm. Some men don't have... They have the capacity to teach and preach, but it might be beyond their gifts, their skill sets, their experience to teach in a certain setting, for example. You'll notice this too, that some men are, are better teachers. They're, they're almost like instructors and others have a, an exhortational gift to their preaching. There's different places to put people in ministry. So all of our elders in our church must be able to articulate and preach the word of God to a small group, to a Bible study, to a congregation, whatever it might be. But we're going to pick the guys that are more skilled at, for instance, Sunday morning preaching to, to take the pulpit. Well, we don't even have a pulpit, but the proverbial <laughs> pulpit on Sunday mornings. Yep. So that's that's really important. I mean, even the apostles had different recorded a, a different recorded impact. People are going to quote Paul far more than they're going to quote Barnabas because he wrote books of the Bible. He's more prominent. Mm -hmm. Peter's more prominent. John's more prominent than some of the other apostles that have, all, I'm not going to say faded into oblivion, but their ministry was more public and prominent. So I, I have no problem at all with the idea of having a lead pastor. When I was younger, when we were kids, we were raised in a brethren church, and it was very much of a, a flat structure. Mm -hmm where everybody it was like even Stephen on every level, everyone had equal say into everything, equal opportunity. It's like an equal opportunity employer. Mm -hmm. um, equal pulpit time, equal Sunday school time, uh, equal responsibilities. I actually don't think that's biblical. 
uh, I don't think it's unbiblical in the sense that it's sinful, but if you look at 1 Timothy 5 and you look at how even the apostolic figures functioned, there's nothing wrong with some people being more prominent and some being less prominent. One's not better or worse. It's just part of your stewardship. Mm-hmm. And and then obviously to oversee and set direction for the church, to guard its mission, to help the church to wade through whatever crises or tribulation they're experiencing at the moment, exercising church discipline. Church discipline doesn't start with the eldership, but it ends with the eldership. Mm-hmm in terms of presenting a person to the congregation for excommunication, Matthew 18. Um, Doctrinal oversight, obviously pastors are going to be doing care, pastoral care and counseling and some crisis ministry in the church. But a lot of that too can be passed on to qualified deacons and deaconesses um, as well. So those are some, some tasks and responsibilities. Obviously each church needs to make some decisions as to where they want to, use their men, but those are some tasks and responsibilities that I think elders should should certainly bear some responsibility for. Mm-hmm. I think it would be helpful for our listeners as we think about uh, changing dynamics of eldership in a, let's say, a growing church, right? I know in our church, we've experienced a significant amount of growth, and that's changed the way our elders have on a day-to-day uh, function. But we want to, at the same time, stick to the biblical responsibilities of elders well adapting to these changes. So can you maybe talk a little bit about that, um, our experience or what you would have as wisdom for others? Yeah. Well, I've had to make those adaptations as well. You see, I pastored this church when it was 35 people and this church when it was 1,500 people. And I can't be everybody's individual pastor anymore. I, I can't be the sharp point of the spear with every church discipline issue. I can't be the guy chairing every meeting, leading every group. I mean, I used to write the bulletin. I used to print the follow-up letters. I used to manage the databases. I used to keep track of our baptismal candidates. I used to do four or five marriage counseling sessions with every young couple in in ministry, right? Most of that stuff I don't do anymore. You know, I'm preparing a sermon. I'm managing staff. I'm working with elders. I'm preparing a podcast. I'm doing some writing, a little bit of counseling here and there, some discipleship, but we've created a structure where hundreds of people have been equipped and released to do the work of the ministry. And I love that. So in the same way that I've had to flex with the times, I'm still an elder, I'm still teaching, preaching, overseeing, but you kind of got to do it differently. You got to train your lay elders and your other staff elders to, to do the same thing. It's important to be inflexible on what the Bible teaches about eldership, but flexible in how that's applied to your circumstances. And that's going to vary based on the size of the church. And I'll say this too, Chris, the personalities that you have. So like to your credit, you are a very good administrator and an overseer and a hard worker and very responsible. But let's say there was a guy in your role that maybe was a little weaker in administration, but was just a you know, really good shepherd or counselor or whatever it might be, I, I might have to like take some things back from you or pass some things yep. off to the next guy. So you, you adjust based upon the personalities, right? Mm-hmm. And often, like even on our elders council, which is our governing elders, uh, I don't like the word board, that's too corporate. I'll just use the biblical language, council of elders. Um, guys come and go from that and depending on their gift mixes and their personalities you're always kind of adjusting right to to um how how your 
delegating responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, maybe another way of putting it is we would acknowledge that there all elders have the identical qualification lists in scripture, the holiness of the calling, but there's different amounts of time that we would allot to different responsibilities depending on how God has wired us. The elders of the church are called to administrate the affairs of the church, but some are just really be- really good administrators, and we're, we all have to teach and preach, but some are just better at teaching and preaching, and we all have to shepherd and, and confront and mm-hmm. exercise church discipline, and some are just better at that than others, right? So we're, we're fine with, with, with that reality. Um, we, for, for vocational elders, typically the way we would work that out is there would be a ministry description written that would have their biblical qualifications at the top and then a series of bullet points that would lay out what their duties and expectations are and then lines of accountability. Who do they, um, I guess, answer to on a day-to-day basis? Who's their immediate supervisor? And then we would have some things in there about just, you know, just general staffing concerns, um, you know, what their work, working hours at the church generally are expected to be and vacation time and all that sort of thing. And they would often be given like a, a, um, a, a set of responsibilities that are unique to their gifts and their calling. Mm-hmm. And we would be looking for, generally, we'd be looking for a person who's functioning in a vocational pastor role to have some formal theological education, um, preferably like a, a BTH or an MDiv, a, a true pastoral degree. We're not opposed to guys coming in with a two-year certificate or a BA in Bible, but those those historic pastoral degrees where you've actually been taught theology, biblical exegesis, hermeneutics, some Greek, some Hebrew, some preaching, ultimately that's that's the kind of stuff we ideally would want a guy to have or at least to develop in mm-hmm. so that he can kind of speak to all the 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 basic issues that a pastor would would function in in terms of non-vocational elders um well he would he would need to have t- time right cuz ge- generally these guys unless they're retired are working 40 50 hours a week somewhere else and you know in a given week they may put 3 hours in as an elder or they may have to put 12 hours in so we we would want to have a conversation to say look i know you may want this and we may want you but do you have time so that would be important. We we require that our vocational or non-vocational elders are um, present and accounted for. So if, if you want to be an elder in a church, but you want to spend six months a year in Florida, okay, God bless. I mean, I'd like to hang out with Ron DeSantis too, but that's just not going to work. Mm-hmm. So we, we would say minimum you need to be uh, – here eighty percent of the time, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then we would say to them, "Look, think about like one hundred percent of your time that you have for ministry. Ninety percent of it needs to go to eldership. We're totally fine with you serving in other areas, but it's." I've learned this over the years. You get guys that are in eldership and they're serving in five other areas, and they they often don't last as elders because they're just doing too much. So. Which reminds me, we probably need to tell our staff, stop going to my elders and asking them for, to serve in all your different areas of ministry. <laughs> They're just so good. Yeah, well, they, <laughs> they, just, they need to dedicate their time to that or they, yep. they burn out. 
Um, and and this is just a real, maybe a minor point, but in a larger church, not all of your elders have to sit on your board or your council, okay? there's You're not a lesser elder because you don't sit on the board. The board can actually be boring. <laughs> but I would say that one of the ways to establish a church, and we've, we've learned this from other churches and then added our own nuances to it. If you have a larger church, and let's say you have 10 elders, you don't need 10 guys sitting around a boardroom on a Wednesday night for hours talking about things. Maybe take half of those guys that are good administrators and organizers and um, experienced tenured men and put them in a position, we call them directional elders. That's just our language, you can use your own. And their responsibility is to oversee doctrine, discipline, and direction, the three Ds. Um, and then we also have flock elders, which are, are assigned portions of the congregation to oversee and shepherd. And their emphasis would be on care, um, counseling, and like crisis management. So I would say that they would be more shepherd-ish guys and the elders council guys would be more oversight-ish guys. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that they all don't weigh in on doctrinal issues or only the flock elders care for people and the directional elders don't, but it's sort of a divvying up a responsibility which, which, which facilitates um, ministry. And then my role as the, the, the lead pastor is, is to kind of keep track of the big picture to um, provide the majority of the public preaching, the vision casting, and frankly, one of my the big aspects of my job, which is maybe more of an art than a science, is seeing and sensing and discerning when there's drift hmm. in a staff person, elder, ministry, and saying, yeah, we, we need to make a corrective there. So keeping the ship pointed in the right direction because you're con just like a ship on the water, right? It's being bashed on one side and the other by waves. There may be underground objects that has to avoid. There's the water depth is a, is a factor, that the wind is a factor, that the way the weight is distributed on the ship is a factor for how it sits in the water. So the captain of the ship doesn't necessarily need to know how to fix motors or if you're in a sailboat, put a flag up, although presumably they would or a sale, I should say, but they're, they're responsible to for the overall upkeep of the vessel to keep it moving in the right direction. And I think that's the role of a competent lead pastor. It doesn't need to do everything, but if the ship is lopsided, there's too much mm -hmm. emphasis on one thing and not enough on the other. If there's not good, good morale among the sailors, if you're not headed in the right direction, if you're not even moving in the water, you're just at a standstill, those are the things that uh, a lead elder, I think, should take responsibility to correct mm -hmm. in the life of a church. Yeah. When it comes to chemistry among elders, what, what kind of tips would you give or insight there? So what you don't want is you don't want to create an elders council of yes men. You want strong leaders that can vocalize their views. But you don't want a guy who's a contrarian either mm -hmm. that views it as his role to challenge every decision. Um, what, what you want to do is you want to create chemistry. And chemistry starts with a, 
obviously a love for Christ, not a love for self, but a love for Christ and a love for the body of Christ. You, it, it involves a, a social awareness and awareness of how other people think. Like in our, in our elders' council, you're gonna have different personalities and different ways of approaching things or thinking through things. You have to learn to appreciate that rather than be irritated by it or frustrated by it. It's, it's good to be, it's good to have um, second opinions. It's, it's good to have different personalities present there. I, I love that. It's wonderful. You should foster that. There does need to be loyalty. There needs to be, I'm not talking about blind loyalty, but there needs to be loyalty to the vision, the culture, the doctrine of the church. There needs mm -hmm. to be buy-in. You don't want a guy coming into eldership that doesn't even agree with maybe one of your distinctives or doesn't agree with the worship culture of your church or doesn't agree with the prayer culture of your church or whatever it might be. Um, that's a recipe for disaster. So it's not like politics where you know, vote me in because I'm going to be bringing about a radical change, fixing what the previous guy wrecked. It's not like that. It's mm -hmm. continuing on and facilitating the vision of the church. There needs to be brotherly bonds. So it is much better when you like each other. <laughs> you have to yeah. love each other, but it's, you want to pick guys you like that you, whose company you enjoy. I mean, you don't want to be, uh, this might sound unspiritual, but you don't want to be doing ministry shoulder to shoulder with a guy who just irritates you to no end or drives you nuts mm -hmm. or whatever it might be. Um, different gifts, but a common core. Uh, being comfortable with different gifts, but a common core is, I think, important. And that, that all develops chemistry. Annual elder retreats or summer barbecues where the wives are invited out. These are all ways of building rapport and repertoire. I, I think it's important at times for elders to meet in homes. We tend to do you know, a couple meetings at the church and then meet in homes. We used to always meet in homes. And the reason for that is I just never wanted to have a, a board feel, a corporate feel, a ships passing in the night kind of feel. It's not always possible for us to do that these days, but we still make an effort. We had an elders council last night and we just met in someone's home. Mm -hmm. And that just kind of helps foster that sense of brotherhood rather than that, that kind of gross corporate feel that a lot of churches struggle with. Yeah. Could you hit uh, maybe put some flesh on the bones with the relationship with a lead pastor between the elders? I think that's maybe one of the, the pieces that's intriguing and puzzling to people. What's that actually look like? Yeah. Well, basically, I just tell them what to do, and they do exactly what I tell <laughs> exactly. them to do. And yes, they, they kiss no my ring, you know, the papal <laughs> ring, and uh, and then I, I run around terrified that they're going to fire me or withdraw my paycheck on any given day. No, not, <laughs> just joking. But I think in some churches there's those dynamics. There's a, it's a sickness mm -hmm. where there's a there's a um, a suspicion from the lead pastor to the other elders and pastors in the church. There's maybe some fear there. There's a a corporate, almost like an employment employee weird dynamic there that goes on. And I just have zero interest in any of that. I want it to be. My relationship with my elders is I want it to be um, such that it's normal to be around them and normal for them to be around me. I, I want it to be normal for us to recognize that we have different levels of training and experience. Like I'm, I'm almost 50 years old. I have nine years of seminary and almost 30 years of pastoral experience. So if I'm in a room with a guy that's been an elder for a week, like I, I would assume that on 99% of the issues, he's going to ask for my opinion and 
defer to my wisdom, but the time's going to come when I'm gone, I'm with Jesus, and he's functioning in that role, and there's a new guy sitting in front of him. So we're, we're, we all hold each other, I'll emphasize this again, to the same qualifications, but we, we just have no no notion at all that we're all equal in our giftedness or our function. We're not. You can you can pretend that that's the case, but you're not. You grab all your elders, have them all preach mm -hmm. one sermon on Sunday morning. I can guarantee you some are going to be more competent than others. And then take them all, throw them into a counseling session, and some are just going to be better than others. And then throw them all into a room to figure out church finances, and some are just going to be better at it than others. So we're all responsible to weigh into that, but some are better than others, and there's no, there's nothing wrong with that. So we're we're comfortable with being different. We don't we don't allow for any intimidation or belittling or looking down on. We we treat each other as as co equals. Um, you know, we would differentiate between uh, a person that's been in a capacity for a long time. So even in my role as a lead pastor, if I die, resign, disqualify myself, and someone new takes my role, it's going to take them a little longer to fit in and understand and and you know have the measure of respect or trust that like I might have after having done this for so long. That's that's fine, right? We we all start at some point in time. In terms of how we make decisions, this is important. So when we when we come together as elders, we we have a consensus model. So we don't vote on anything. Um, we don't vote in our church. The church isn't a democracy and the elders council isn't a democracy. We, we, we make decisions like families make decisions. We sit around, we talk about it. And we discuss it until we decide that there's a consensus. It doesn't mean everybody has the exact same level of conviction, but there's a general sense that we're all we're all going to stand by each other and make decision ABC, and then we we make that decision. So we, the way it was presented to us is, um, it's it's the difference between uni speak and uni thought. So you don't all have to think exactly the same, but we're all going to talk the same way. So if we if we had an issue in in our elders were discussing it and let's say a few guys were extremely favorable to it and a few guys were ambivalent and maybe one guy was like I, I don't know I don't, I don't I don't feel comfortable with it we would wait and we would pray about it and we'd dialogue about it more until we at least bring everyone to a place of it sounds bad maybe but ambivalence where it's mm -hmm. yeah I'm fine either way mm -hmm. and then we would go forward with that um, decision, and we would all support it. No guy would say to a member of the congregation, oh, by the way, just so you know, I wasn't really in favor of that. Mm -hmm. We would consider that divisive mm -hmm. and disqualifying. Yep. Um, so we pastor as one. We don't have our own separate congregation. So if I hear guys say things like, you know, I there's there's these unanimous people that always consult me on these issues, I'd be like, well, who are they? Yeah. And if you're not willing to name them, don't don't bother mentioning it because what you don't want is create a, to create a congregation where everyone has their favorite go-to pastor, mm -hmm. the ear of their their favorite go-to pastor that that is going to represent them well. We also in, encourage our men to keep their wives out of our elder discussions and and decisions. So here's 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 what I've noticed over the years: the general principle, a lot of the churches that are most committed theologically to male leadership behind the scenes have very dominant wives that are often you discover calling the shots. Mm -hmm. And it's important 
in churches, if we're going to if we're going to say we actually believe in male leadership, and we, especially in the area of eldership, then there's no reason for you to be going home and consulting your wife on elder decisions. Mm-hmm. Okay, first of all, you're putting a burden on her; she doesn't she's not required to bear. But it also can create gross dynamics between elders' wives or a sense among elders that, you know, there's all these people out there that are aware of the conversations that are taking place and they're going to think of me differently because they're aware of a private conversation that took place. Elders make elder decisions. Mm -hmm. So we say to our guys, exercise discretion. If we're talking about something that's clearly not confidential and you go home and your wife said, oh, what'd you guys discuss tonight? Well, tell her, who cares? But exercise some discretion. Most of the stuff she doesn't need to know. And frankly, most elders' wives shouldn't be asking, what did you discuss tonight? Mm-hmm. I don't say to my wife when she's gone out with all her girlfriends, hey, what, what were all the discussions about? Right? First of all, I probably You're don't want to know. You're not interested. No, I probably don't want to know. Um, I know it's going to be about perfume and makeup and hair. No, I'm just kidding. But um, It'll be about what the elders are talking about. Yeah, no, yeah, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. No, no. How one know. elder offended another elder. <laughs> no. Um, I don't want to get into the weeds too much, but I also think one of the, one of the things that needs to be considered is you're going you're gonna to structure your elder relationships different based upon the size of the church you have. Mm-hmm. So if you have um, a church of a couple hundred, you're going to need at least two or three elders. Um, you know, when you get up to a thousand people, you're going to have probably several vocational elders and you can have an elders council and hopefully some flock elders that can help counsel and mentor your people. So those, those are things that, um, you know, you can just adjust uh, over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So do you want to talk any more about uh, nuts and bolts? Like we could talk even reporting structures and all that kind of stuff. I don't know if that's helpful for people or. Yeah, well, what, what we do is we require, so all of our staff do six-week reports, and that would include vocational deacons, vocational elders that are submitted to the elders council. So we're all kind of generally aware of what's going on in various major ministries of the church. Um, all of our small group leaders are under a flock elder. We expect the flock elders to be reporting to the elders council as required. The elders council generally sends out reports, whether it's minutes or we have quarterly meetings with the rest of the elders in the church to kind of bring each other up to speed and what's going on in the life of the church. Uh, it's great in a given year to have one or two collective points of contact. So last, what was it, last fall we did like a, um, kind of a big, what was it, a taco night? Yeah, basically with all the yeah the, uh, All elders. the elders, all their all their wives, um, were the staff involved in that yep. too? Yeah. So we had we had that out at my place, kind of a big outdoor party and opportunity to connect leaders, to connect with leaders. And we've done um, elders retreats up north where we just mm-hmm. take our all of our elders and we go up to a cottage and we hang out for a few days and guys take turns leading devotions or talking about issues that are relevant to eldership. Those are all ways of building into mm-hmm. to your elders. And the way you're going to do those are going to vary depending on how many guys there are or whether you want to in, include families for more of a picnic, whether it's a decision-making retreat or just a opportunity for fellowship. You want to make sure you're building into your elders. You know, I like to give honor privately and publicly to our elders provide ongoing training, maybe recommending books. We haven't done that for a little while, but we always used to go through like one book mm-hmm. as an elders council, spend half an hour discussing a chapter at the beginning of a meeting, 
giving each other feedback. Th- those are the sorts of things that we we think are important. Another thing is, you know, we need to guard each other, right? Because yeah. the Bible says in First Timothy five not to admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses, because. If everyone gets an opportunity to take a pot shot at an elder, then you diminish the, God's authority structures in the church and you have nothing left. Mm-hmm. So with elders, you know, we assume the best. And if there's a charge, it needs to be validated. It needs to be witnessed by, by others. Um, you know, we have had some times when we've had some challenges. I don't know if we've ever really had that issue with lay elders, but we, we've had a couple staff elders go sideways, um, two of whom don't even follow the Lord Jesus today. They've been gone for years. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a sad thing, but it, it happens, right? Some people fall away from the faith. So just developing those, um, those uh, accountability structures, disciplining your elders. Hey, you know, if an elder is, is out of line, um, if they're divisive, they need to be warned. If um, if they're divisive, they're warned twice. Titus three teaches that, and then have nothing more to do with them. So we just don't tolerate division. We don't tolerate mm-hmm. people with agendas. We don't tolerate show offs. We don't tolerate people trying to one up others. Um, we want humble, godly men that also are bold and courageous to lead God's people. And I'm just I'll just say this: if you you're never going to have perfect elders, but if you work hard to get your elders right. It will increase trust among your congregation and decisions will be much easier to make and more easily accepted. And you will accelerate the ministry. God will bless that because this is one of God's spheres of authority. This is one one of God's structures that he has chosen to put in place to govern his people. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah, that's, I think, a huge blessing. Um, We've seen that here and like anything good, it takes time to develop. It does. Yeah, you don't time, develop. Right? Yeah, it takes years to really develop a strong elder culture. And but so what? You know, take as much time as you need, and and then um, one day it's going to be someone else's turn yep. to to carry the torch for the next generation. Awesome. Well, we hope this uh, two part series has been helpful thinking through biblical eldership. As we conclude, we want to just give a, a shout out to our Young Adults Conference coming up. Aaron, do you want to say a couple words about that on March 17th, 18th? We, we're having a conference here at our church for young adults. I just really have a passion. The, the young adults, we're talking people that are turning 18 this year up to 29. We just really want to see them equipped to fight the culture wars, to think Christianly about all of life, to meet future spouses, uh, if they're married, to meet other married couples that can encourage them in their marriage, to get to know people from other like-minded churches across our province, our country. So we already have a couple hundred people coming. Uh, there's still room. Uh, if you want to come to that, you can hop on harvestwindsor.ca and register for our um, young adult conference. It's going to be a Friday and Saturday. It's going to be a great time. We're going to have uh, two speakers um, two really good speakers and then me. You thought I was going to go good. the other way around. I, I thought you were going the other way around, 100%. <laughs> uh, and then we're going to have some breakout sessions. We have three or four yeah. other guys that are coming to do some breakout sessions. We're going to have a kind of a coffee house one night. It's going to be a, a great time. And if, if people want to stay for Sunday, that's fine. Or if they need to get back to their home church, that's awesome too. So yeah, if you haven't heard about that or 
Um, you know of some young people, again, those kind of born, I guess that would be 2005 would be the minimum age. Uh, those that are turning 18 this year up to the age 29, we'd love to have them come and, and participate. Awesome. That's good stuff. Well, thanks, Aaron. And thanks to our listeners again for tuning in. Make sure to like, subscribe, share the podcast, get the word out about uh, this great resource. And we hope it is a great resource for you and a blessing. A reminder that you can hear it on pursuitofglory.org. That's Pastor Aaron's personal blog, as well as over on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. You can download their app to get this episode as well as many other podcasts from them. We hope that you uh, tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.